Good to hear. Um, Tonight we are continuing our study through Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 42. To catch you up to speed, uh, most of you have been here throughout most of the studies through Genesis, uh, but if you recall, we're in the story of Joseph, and we've discussed how God saw fit that Joseph consume about 25% of the book of Genesis. He's uh, pretty much the uh, one of the most pivotal characters in the Bible, and I believe one of the big reasons why God inspired so many details of Joseph's story is because Joseph's story uh, is very similar to Jesus's story, and there's a lot of different connections that we've been discussing throughout the story of Joseph. We'll see even more of those come to light right now, but when we consider everything that has happened in Joseph's life, we have to remember where he started, and we see him come on the scene, and where the book really starts focusing on him is when he's 17, and he has these dreams, right, and he communicates these dreams, and he's kind of boasting in himself, and he's saying how his, not only his brothers, but his whole family, including his mother and father, will bow down to him one day. Now, Joseph had many gifts, but at that point in time, he didn't have the character to match the gifts. So God saw fit using the sins and mistakes of his brothers to walk Joseph through this severe 13 year leadership program. And we saw how Joseph was first thrown into a pit, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, started doing well, then he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison, interprets some dreams in prison, thinking that he might get out, and then it doesn't happen. Then last week, we see a couple years after he interpreted those dreams that he was brought before Pharaoh to interpret some of his dreams. And that's when he's finally put into that position of leadership, literally at the right hand of Pharaoh, the second in command. Nobody could do anything without Joseph approving. And Joseph came up with that brilliant solution and how to endure the seven years of famine. But we've talked a lot about these tests that God had given Joseph and why God was testing Joseph. We discussed uh, the primary reason of it was to grow him in his character, but also he had this bigger redemptive plan for all of Israel and God knew every detail, everything that was going to happen. And we've focused on the fact that Joseph When it came time to take these practical spiritual tests, if you will, he passed these tests with flying colors. We don't even see one mention of him sinning throughout this time. And he went through a very, very difficult time in his life. So many different trials, so much testing. This chapter, we're going to see another test with Joseph, but... This time, it's not Joseph who is the one that's being tested. It's Joseph who's doing the testing. And Joseph will be testing his brothers. Not to get back at them, not because he's mad at them, but because he has a specific purpose. See, he's testing them to expose them 
and the sin that they committed against him so that ultimately they can be restored. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, Tested, Exposed, and Restored. Tested, Exposed, and Restored. And so often in our lives, we see God do just this. He tests us to expose, to bring to the surface the sins in our lives. Then he addresses those sins. Why? So that he can restore us. So that he can bring ultimate spiritual restoration in our lives that we might experience the abundance of life that he desires for us. Before we dive into this text, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for uh, the fact that you speak to us through your word and that it's living and powerful, God, and I pray that that would happen tonight. You would speak to us, that we would experience this powerful living quality uh, of your word and we would be changed by it. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, uh, both as a group and as individuals, Lord, and, and we would we would really leave here uh, knowing that We've heard from you. I believe that you've spoken some, some, some things to me uh, through this, God. And I, and I pray you speak things uh, to everyone in here. We love you. In your name, amen. All right. Genesis chapter 42, picking it up in verse 1. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Now, this is interesting. Jacob, he realizes that there's grain in Egypt when there's not grain anywhere else. Why? Because they're going through a famine and Joseph is the only one that knew this, communicated it to Pharaoh because of this dream that he had. And Joseph has been accumulating 20% of the grain for that seven years of plenty. Now, Jacob, he hears that there's grain in Egypt. And as soon as Egypt's mentioned, what do the brothers do? Why do you look at one another? Why are they looking at one another? In the Hebrew, it says that they're looking at one another questionably. Meaning that they know there's some connection to Egypt and Joseph. Meaning that when they sold Egypt to the Amalekites, to the Ishmaelites, um, that they knew he eventually would wind up in Egypt. As soon as they hear the word Egypt, they're unsettled. They're startled. It's bringing back all the memories of what they did, how they betrayed their brother, what they committed, the sin they committed against their brother. And though it's been 20 years now, at least 20 years since they sold their brother into slavery, this sin is still haunting them, which brings me to the first of, I think, four. Sin haunts us. Is that Siri? sin haunts us glad to have you here tonight siri it's great (laughs) see the brothers are looking at each other questionably because the sin that they committed 20 years ago is still haunting them you ever committed a sin in your life that still haunts you to this day are there sins in your life maybe that have gone 
unconfessed. And there's something, there's that thing in your heart. Maybe someone even mentions a word and there's that association. And you start considering, you start thinking about this specific sin and the act that you committed and it's just haunting you. It's just burdening you. Secret sin leads to just that. It leads to a burdensome conscience. And the enemy, the enemy will use this burdensome conscience to lead you to this place of self-condemnation. And he'll make you think, oh, that you're not forgiven of that thing. Or, or you'll never be forgiven of that thing. Or whatever it is. And what God is using as an avenue of conviction, the enemy uses as an avenue of self-condemnation. Because the Lord, he's bringing it to memory for another reason. Why? What's that reason? He wants you to confess. He wants you to repent so that he can restore you because we know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's Romans chapter 8 verse 1. It says just that. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is there there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So we know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus when the enemy's trying to condemn us. But it says also who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. When we're walking in the flesh, we'll feel condemned. When we're walking in the spirit, we're we're confessing. We we feel free because that's what confession does in our lives it it frees us in fact james tells us in james chapter 5 he encourages us or exhorts us to confess our sins one to another that we might be healed right god calls us to confess one to another to experience healing to experience restoration just Like this story with these brothers, 20 years has gone by and this sin is still haunting them. Sometimes we think, oh, if enough time time goes by, maybe I'll forget that sin or I'll forget what I did. But that's not what we see in scripture. Those sins will haunt us until we deal with them. And when we confess, when we repent of those things, now we're able to experience healing. Now we're able to experience restoration. And that's such a big theme in this text, as we'll see moving forward. Genesis chapter 42, verse 2. And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So we see the famine was severe just as God had said it brought people into these life or death situations. It was either get grain from Egypt or perish from starvation. And it's interesting how God does this. The nation of Israel has to depend on Egypt for their survival. It's like, wait a minute. God said that he was going to bless the nation of Israel, but now they have to lean on Egypt. We see this uh, lesson throughout Scripture that, that God uses carnal, worldly leaders to bring restoration to his people. 
We know that God places all authority in our lives, even corrupt authority. And we see through scripture, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus or Caesar, whoever it may be, Herod, God uses these corrupt authority figures to bring his people restoration and to teach them lessons. God's doing just that here. He's allowing this famine to occur in the land for two reasons. To teach his people a valuable lesson, and we'll see the brothers begin to learn that lesson in this chapter, and also to restore his people to literally bring them salvation. There's a reason they have to depend on Egypt, and if they won't, they'll perish. Genesis chapter 42, verse 3. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. So he sends the ten, but he keeps Benjamin back. Why? Probably a few reasons. Last time he sent uh, Joseph, his beloved, to go find his brothers, what happened? He never saw them again. So there could be this underlying thing that maybe Jacob doesn't necessarily trust his other sons around his beloved. We don't know. But we do know that Joseph was the second son that was born of his favorite wife, the one whom he loved, Rachel, and he has this special place in his heart for both Joseph and Benjamin. He thinks that Joseph died. He's trying to prevent this calamity from happening to Benjamin, so he keeps him behind. But see what Jacob is doing is he's allowing his fear of the past to control his present. Which brings me to the second point. Don't let your fear of the past control your present. Don't let your fear of the past control your present. He's so afraid because of the loss that he experienced in losing Joseph. He's living his life literally in fear. He's making decisions that are based not on the trust in the Lord, but out of fear of circumstances and what could happen. We have this tendency as well. When something bad or tragic happens to us in our lives, it produces this fear in us and this concept or this idea that what if this thing happens again? Because I lost this loved one, I might lose another one. So I'm going to make decisions and do everything I can to protect this person because I lost a loved one. I don't want to lose a loved one again. And we can allow the fear be, that was produced because of a tragic situation literally control our lives. That we're living in fear and we're constantly concerned with what might happen to me or what might happen to this other individual. And we forget that fear isn't in control. God is in control. And we see even in this story, ultimately God is in control. What what Jacob believes is a lie. Joseph isn't really gone. He's not really dead. God used all these circumstances to bring Joseph to Egypt to ultimately restore the entire family. But Jacob doesn't realize that. 
He's not thinking that way. He's simply afraid because he lost a loved one. And the decisions that he's making in the present are rooted in that fear of the past. We can't allow the fear of the past to control our present or even our futures. We have to remember that God is ultimately in control. Fear is only in control when we let it be in control. And Jacob, he's allowing fear to control his life. Genesis chapter 42, verse 5. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. So we see that the sons of Israel, excluding Benjamin, come to Joseph and the land of Egypt. And Joseph, as we learned last week, he was the governor. He was the leader. He had unlimited resources, if you will. They're forced to come to Joseph. And look at what it says there at the very end of verse 6. I want to reread it. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces on the earth. That remind you of anything? Right. That was the dream. Right. That was the dream back in Genesis chapter 37 that his brothers would bow down before him. The dream is being fulfilled. This is also interesting, though. We hit on it a little bit last week, just as the famine brings the sons of Israel to bow down before Joseph. So, too, the seven year tribulation will bring the Israelites, to bow down before Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, we see just that. Every, every creature will end up bowing down before Jesus. And we'll get into some other scriptures as well in Zechariah 12 and 13 about how the Jewish people end up recognizing uh, Jesus. But I want to point out something else. When we were, like, think about this. If we just read Genesis 37 to 40, and all the bad things that happened to Joseph, would you ever think, other than the dreams, that, that this dream would have actually been fulfilled? It, it, it seems as if he keeps backtracking, right? He goes from uh, being sold into slavery to being a prisoner. And it's like, yeah, God had favor over his life this whole time, but it doesn't seem like this dream is ever going to be fulfilled until... He gets this off chance that Pharaoh has this dream and he's able to interpret it and he's able to be put in this position of authority. And now we begin to say, oh, this is how the dream is going to be fulfilled. Sometimes God can tell us something, maybe even give us a dream, even communicate something to us. And we think it's never going to happen. It's never going to be fulfilled. How can I look at my present circumstances and believe that what God said back then is actually going to happen to me in the future? Do you have dreams? I'm not talking about sleepy dreams. You all have, Adam was just dreaming just then. So everybody has dreams. (laughs) I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> everybody has dreams. I'm not just talking about the dreams that we dream when we're asleep. I'm, I'm talking about the dreams that we dream when we're awake, the visions, the ideas, the desires, the things in the future that maybe we've always wanted to do. Maybe it's something to do. Maybe it's something to be. Maybe some of you have always had this dream to be a missionary in Africa or China or wherever. Maybe, maybe some of you have had this dream to be a doctor. Maybe some of you want to be actors. And you guys are like, hey, I'm pushing, I'm pushing a, a older age now, and there's no way this dream could ever be fulfilled. That used to be my dream, but it's no longer my dream. Well, let me tell you that if that dream was from the Lord, it absolutely can be fulfilled. Everything was pointed against Joseph and against this dream being fulfilled. But because Joseph worshipped a big God and these dreams came from a big God, he was able to fulfill these big dreams. Third point, a big God fulfills big dreams. A big God fulfills big dreams. No, I'm not saying everybody should quit their jobs and become actors. But if God gave you something, he told you something in the past, maybe he called you to be in ministry or uh, to become a pastor or to become whatever. And you're like, I can't happen now because now I'm doing something. We can't put God in a box. We can't think of him as this small little God. He's a big God that can do big things. And he absolutely can fulfill big dreams. We just have to Give him the chance. Just have to walk by faith. We just have to trust him just as Joseph trusted him. And now we see in verse 6, those big dreams are being fulfilled by this big God. In Genesis chapter 42, verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. So Joseph, he speaks to him as a stranger. We see later that he has an interpreter. Okay, he's not speaking their language, even though he knows their language. He's disguising himself from them. And he has a purpose in all of this. But this is interesting. He recognizes his brothers, but his brothers didn't recognize him. Just as Joseph's brothers didn't recognize Joseph, the sons of Israel didn't recognize the man that was going to save them. So, too. The Israelites, they didn't recognize the Messiah. He knew them, but they didn't know him. Only some of them did. But as a whole, we see in the scriptures, especially in Romans chapter 11, we see that the Jews are blinded to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Eventually, we'll see that that veil is removed and the Jews will ultimately recognize Jesus. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. In Genesis chapter 42, verse 9, Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. So he's accusing them of spying out the land to come up with like some military strategy to take over Egypt. 
Okay, Joseph knows they're not going to do that, right? He has a different reason in why he's bringing accusation against them. He's bringing accusation against them to test them. And that's what he's going to do. He's ultimately testing his brothers. Some say that God likely was working through Joseph to tell him not to give himself up right away. Why? Well, it's one thing for the Israelites, for the sons of Israel to be restored practically and be saved practically and be fed. But it's another thing to be restored spiritually. And what God wanted to do and what Joseph wanted to do is to test these brothers to not only save them from the famine, but also save them from themselves and the sin that has been that has been working against them for all these years. So he doesn't tell them right away. He has a different approach. He tests them for the specific purpose. He wants to restore them. Genesis chapter 42, verse 10. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. This is interesting. They refer, refer to him as their Lord. Uh, he is their authority, just as the dream suggested. Verse 11, we are all one man's son. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. And he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. So we see they're trying to plead their case. And one of the things that they say is we are honest men. They're not honest and they're not good. They're getting ready to lie in, in verse 13. They're not honest. They're just trying to plead their case so that they might get some food. But they likely believe this. In the moment, they likely believe they're honest. They likely believe that they're good. And what are they trying to attain? They're trying to attain bread that will literally save them. There's a connection here and a picture of those of us when we fall into this self-righteous mentality, when we consider ourselves good enough. We're good enough to receive the bread that's going to save us. But it doesn't work like that. They're not good enough. Only God is good and his standard of good is absolute perfection. We'll see through this test that God is going to expose them and reveal to them that truth that they are not good enough and they're not deserving of the bread that literally is going to save them. We'll develop that a little bit more. In Genesis chapter 42. Verse 12, <clears throat> he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of the of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. One is no more. Look at what happens here. They say, oh, yeah, the youngest is back with dad, but there's one who is no more. This is a lie. This is a flat out lie. The one who is no more is speaking to them. But they say, no, they're our other brother, the twelfth one. He is no more. You know what I think? I think they started to believe their own lie. I started to think they started to believe that Joseph actually was no more. 
that he died just like they said he died. Now, obviously, they think he probably died some other way than the beast destroying him and getting the blood all over the coat like they suggested to their father. But I believe they're beginning to believe this lie. They should know he's alive. Why? Because they sold him into slavery. They didn't have him killed like some suggested, you know. If we lie to ourselves long enough, we begin to believe it. When we say this lie, think about it, this lie they've been living for 20 years. They're probably starting to believe it. When we lie to ourselves about specific areas in our life, we begin to believe it. You might say, I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to find that special someone. It's been so long and I feel like it's just never going to happen. I'll never be what God has called me to be. I know he's called me to do this thing, but I'm never going to live up to it. I'm never going to overcome this sin that I've been struggling with for so long. When we tell ourselves these things, we're going to start believing them. And then we're going to start living in those places. The brothers, that's where they live. They live in this lie that Joseph is no more when he's speaking right to them. Verse 14. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying you are spies in this manner. You shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. So, again, Joseph, he's testing the brothers to bring restoration to the brothers. Without this testing, the sin doesn't get exposed. And without that, that exposure, the, the sin isn't addressed and the restoration can never happen. What's the point of saving these brothers from a physical famine if they're still living in a spiritual famine? Joseph has a purpose in this. He could just give them the bread, but he's not. He tests them because he knows they need something more than this. They need to be delivered, not just from this physical famine. They need to be delivered from this spiritual famine that they've been living in for the last 20 years, being consumed by this sin and how they betrayed his brother, their brother. Sorry. Genesis chapter 42, verse 16 Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. So what we see Joseph do is, hey, he puts them in prison and then at first he's going to send one of them out to bring Benjamin back to him. Why does he want to see Benjamin? Well, could be a couple reasons. First of all, Benjamin is, is his one full blood brother. The rest are half brothers, right? And he has this uh, special connection with Benjamin, as we'll see later. Also, all the brothers that are standing before them, before him, are the ones that betrayed and rejected him. Those are the ones that sold him into slavery. But Benjamin, he was the only one that wasn't there during that time. He was the only one that wasn't a part of that betrayal. So he probably feels this uh, connection again and uh, this sense of loyalty with his brother Benjamin. But we also see a connection to the Israelites. Benjamin is a representation of the remnant. And you see this remnant throughout Scripture, but specifically the remnant that accepted 
Jesus. Most of the Israelites rejected Jesus, but there were some, there were a few that accepted Jesus. Many betrayed him, but there were some that accepted him. And Benjamin gives us a picture of that. He says again, your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. He already knows they're lying because he's standing right in front of them. He said one is no more. The other two things are true. But the fact that the one is no more is obviously not true. So he knows the whole story. He knows that they're lying already. So what does he do? How does he test them? One of the ways he throws them in prison. That's what it says in verse 17. He put them in prison for three days. They're just getting a taste of what Joseph had to walk through for 13 years. He put him in prison for three, for three days. Joseph was in prison for multiple years. See, Joseph, he might have thought if I allow my brothers to get a little taste of what happened to me, then maybe they'll change. Maybe their hearts will change. Maybe they'll realize where they went wrong and they'll grow in character. And we see some of this is effective. While they're in prison, we see later on they talk about their sin. They confess their sin uh, later. Likely, all this is happening and they're realizing, they're remembering the sin that they committed against Joseph. Remember from the beginning, they're questioning amongst themselves, looking at themselves. When they hear the word Egypt, this wasn't something that they forgot. They remembered what they did with Joseph. We mentioned how this sin haunted them and now they're in prison and they believe God is kind of in on all of this and he's making these things happen to them but in all reality they've brought this upon themselves and they've literally while in prison been meditating on the sin that has enslaved them they're in a physical prison but they're also in a spiritual prison consumed by this sin that they committed against joseph genesis chapter 42 Verse 18, then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain from the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So look, Joseph on that third day, he says, do this and live, for I fear God. God. Now, the word God here is Elohim. That was one of the Hebrew names for God. That was the name that they knew. This should have given the brothers a little hint. Wait a minute. This guy just said Elohim. He fears the same God that we've been taught about our whole lives. It was a little hint, but they still didn't catch it. They still didn't recognize it. If you're honest, men, bring your brothers to me. Just bring Benjamin back. And we'll be able to deal with the situation. You'll get the bread that you're asking for. Genesis chapter 42, verse 21. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore, his distress has come upon us. They're speaking specifically of Joseph and the sin that they committed against Joseph. What do we see here? The test worked. The test putting them in prison and challenging them to get Benjamin, which hasn't happened yet. This test is working. It's accomplishing exactly what Joseph wanted it to accomplish. 
He's testing them to expose them. In all reality, it's ultimately to restore them spiritually. Point number four. God tests us to expose us and restore us. God tests us to expose us and restore us. We see... Again, the test accomplishing exactly what Joseph had intended, but God also does this to us, as we mentioned in the beginning of this teaching. See, we often don't know where we're at in our spiritual walks until we're tested. When things are comfortable, when things are cozy, when things are always going our way, we feel like we're good Christians, right? But then what happens when a curveball is thrown our way? Or a trial or something devastating happens to us in our lives. When the the God of creation, when he tests us, what comes out of us? Sometimes not always the prettiest things. Sometimes these nasty things. Sometimes these fleshly things. Sometimes these sinful things that we never even knew were there. Maybe it was the sin that we suppressed for so long like these brothers. And so many years later, God throws this test our way to bring it to the surface. Why? Because it was never taken care of. God's tests are difficult. They're not enjoyable, but they're necessary. There was a season of my life um, where uh, I was tested by the Lord in many ways. I got to make this brief. Uh, But first off, we were doing this training on this beach with like these military guys one was a uh marine recon and the other one was a uh, a trainer for fbi agents and these guys were like straight out of the movies okay they're like southern accents six three six four just jack they looked like they should be in a movie uh they were so funny and they loved the lord and they started this ministry it's called sog it's it's like special operations groups but it's specifically for uh missions trips and going into like these dark places that nowhere else would go so we teamed up with these guys we were doing some training with them and we were like saving each other from the water and doing all this team building stuff and you feel like you're going to die the whole time. And then we did like this wrestling thing in this circle and I was wrestling my buddy Ian and we're just wiped. And he runs and just picks me up and slams me on the ground and just cracks my rib and I can't breathe. I'm like, I feel like I'm dying. Well, if any of you have ever had a, a cracked rib, uh, it hurts really bad and you and it's really hard to breathe. Now, I couldn't work out after that and I would try and it would frustrate me so bad because working out was and is one of my favorite things to do. And I'm like, man, this really sucks. I would try to work out, but it, it just wouldn't happen. I was constantly in pain. Right around that same time was when Elizabeth and I started talking and we were challenged to put the relationship off for another four months. And it didn't make sense to me. I didn't agree with it. I thought it was wrong. I thought it was unfair, but I was being tested. And I'm going, man, God, if this is what ministry is all about, I don't know if I want to be, be in this. When the te- I thought I was good before all this happened, but then the Lord took my two favorite things away, the, the girl I was falling in love with in, in my, my workouts. And I'm like, man, what are you trying to teach me, Lord? 
and he tested me and he tested me hard. And there was all these different things that were happening in that season. He was literally crushing my life, but it was all for a purpose. He was exposing me. These are the idols in your life. These are the things that you keep putting before me. And I'm not going to stop testing you. I'm not going to stop crushing you until you get your priorities straight. I was your priority, and then it started to shift. Who are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? The Lord, he tested me. It hurt. Literally, physically, it hurt. Spiritually, it hurt. Emotionally, it hurt. Mentally, it hurt. But it was all in an effort to expose my sin to myself that what? That I could be restored. And that's why the Lord tests us. It's that refining fire. When you refine gold, what happens? The impurities come to the surface, right? So that you can scrape off the impurities and what you have is more pure than what you started with. That's why we hear about this refining fire so often in the Bible. He tests us. He refines us to ultimately purify us and restore us. That's what he's doing with the brothers. He's testing them to expose them and restore them. This is also pretty interesting in connection to Israel. Israel... will not be restored until they recognize and acknowledge what they've done to Jesus, just as the brothers. When they recognize and acknowledge what they did to Joseph, Israel, until they acknowledge what their ancestors ultimately did to Jesus, they won't be restored. And we see this in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. In Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah 12, it's um, right in the middle of all the minor prophets. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. See, the Israelites, they're going to look on the one whom they pierce. Speaking of Jesus, recognized how they didn't acknowledge him, recognize what they, their ancestors did to him. And then and only then when they recognize this, will they experience grace? Will they experience healing? Will they experience restoration and salvation? Genesis chapter 42, verse 22. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, did not do not sin against the boy and you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. Reuben speaks up, speaks out. It's true. He tried to prevent this thing from happening. He said to throw him in the pit because he was ultimately going to save him. Uh, we remember that back from Genesis chapter 37. But look at what he says there at the end. His blood is now required of us. Flip with me to Matthew chapter 27. Very similar to what was said to Jesus. Matthew chapter 27. Verse 25. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. This is when they say crucify Him. Pilate's like, this is on you. The blood's on your... They're like, fine. Blood's on us and our children. He's supposed to... 
He should die. He's supposed to die. Exactly what Reuben's saying. Hey, the blood is on us. Another connection there uh, for us. Genesis chapter 42, verse 23. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. So Joseph, he knows what they said. He heard them confess this thing about him. He he was using an interpreter. So they said this thing openly, but they didn't realize Joseph could understand the words that he was saying. They were saying, uh, which brings me to Genesis chapter 42, verse 24. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he turned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So at the... Uh, as he's hearing his brothers finally confess and repent of the sin that they committed against him, he weeps, he's moved. He realizes once again that the test worked. He wasn't trying to punish his brothers. He wasn't out to get them. He wasn't trying to just put them through everything that they put him through. He just wanted them to admit what they did to him. He he just wanted them to to confess their sins and repent of it. That was his heart the whole time. Though they hated him, though they were enemies against them, he still had love for them. Gives us another picture of Jesus. Picking it up in verse 25. So they take Simeon. We don't know why they chose Simeon, but took Simeon. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus, he did for them. So look what Joseph does. Uh, The brothers, we remember, hey, uh, Jacob is wealthy. The whole lineage uh, of Abraham uh, up to this point, they're, they're very wealthy. So they have money. They pay for this bread. But what happens is Joseph commands that the money is restored back to each man's money bag. Which is extremely interesting when we consider this connection to Christ. What they were trying to do was buy the bread that would literally save them. And who's the bread of life? Jesus, right? And what do we know about that bread? You can't buy it. You can't purchase it. No matter what these brothers did to try to attain that bread, it was given to them freely once they confessed and once they repented. They could not pay a penny for it. The money was given back to them. Salvation, it's a free gift. We can't work for salvation. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, amongst so many other scriptures, but we even see this in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what is not does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight in abundance. Now we see this picture of Jesus really in this text of Isaiah. He says, come to me and drink, come to me and eat. What you're looking for, money can't buy. What you're looking for is salvation. What you're looking for is a relationship with the Lord and you can't pay for it. All you have to do is, is ask for it. And when we ask for it, then we can have it. We can have it freely. Genesis chapter 42, verse 26. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. 
now departing from there, from Egypt. Uh, Jacob's likely back in Hebron. That's the last time we saw him. This is about 250 miles away. Okay, this is a long hike. All right, it would have taken a, a while for them to get back. So they departed with the donkeys. Verse 27, but as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. And there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? So we see now they notice along their journey that this money is restored and now they're afraid that they're going to be accused of stealing. They have Joseph already has Simeon. If he finds out that they stole from him, which they didn't, right? Joseph gave it back to them, but they don't, they don't know this. They don't really know how this whole thing happened, and they're worried that Joseph will accuse them of stealing. Then they blame God. Look at that. Look, what is this that God has done to us? They think God's doing these things to them. And God's in here, and God's working through this, but, but not in the way that they initially thought. God's working together for their good, not for their bad. You ever assume that God is out to get you? You ever assume that God is just bringing all these things against you because he's angry at you or he's mad at you? That's where they're at. That's what they're thinking. They're not understanding the character of God, that he's a good father. And even when hard times come our way, that's not because of his wrath or because of his anger or because he's trying to punish us. No, it's because he loves us and he disciplines those he loves. All the things that are happening to the brothers, God's using this to bring them ultimate restoration. Can't mistake God's discipline for a lack of love. God's discipline is love. Genesis chapter 42, verse 29. Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man who was lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is with our fathers this day in the land of Canaan. They lie again. One is no more. Uh, Then the man... The Lord of the country said to us, by this, I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone and bring your youngest brother to me. So I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in the sack. And when They and their father saw the bundles of money. They were afraid. Verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. So not only do the brothers think God's against them, so does Jacob think all these things are working against them. What we just read is, Ultimately, the brothers just retelling the story, continuing to lie about Joseph being no more when they know that 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 he's likely alive. And Jacob, after hearing this story, now Simeon is gone. Now you're asking me to give up Benjamin. All these things are against me. This is interesting when you compare Joseph's faith 
to Jacob's faith at this time. Joseph didn't have the mentality that all these things are working against me when he was betrayed, when he was thrown into a pit, when he was sold into slavery, when he was falsely accused, when he was put into prison, when he was forgotten. He wasn't having that attitude, mentality, woe is me. He wasn't, we don't see him once complain about it. We don't see him once say, oh, all these things are against me. But Jacob, his father, not going through as severe trials as Joseph went through. He's complaining. He's considering that all these things are working against him. See, when we face tragedies in our life or perceived tragedies, Joseph's still alive, but he thinks he lost his son and it's leading to him to, it's leading him to this place of distrust in the Lord. He doesn't have that confidence in the Lord that we've seen him have in the past. When bad things happen, sometimes that leads us to question. Sometimes that leads us to a lack of trust in the Lord. But when tragedy happens, we can't allow that to lead us to distrust God. If, or or we, we need to allow it to lead us to trust God. We know this. In God's word, he promises us something. He promises us many things, but there's one thing in particular. We know he's never against us, right? He's actually always for us. And that's what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. It says, if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? If Jacob is trusting the Lord, you would realize this, that God, he's not having all these things happen to him because he's against him. No, it's the complete opposite. All these things are happening to him for him, to save him, to restore him. The tragedy that he thinks is real is not real. He's trying to bring him to the truth, but Jacob is going through it. He's questioning. He's assuming that all these things are against him. Genesis chapter 42, verse 37 Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, when you would bring down my grave, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. So we see Reuben, he speaks up and he, he basically, it's interesting, uh, I'll, I'll put my two sons up. If anything happens to Benjamin, you can kill my two sons. It's like, is, is Jacob really going to find satisfaction? And, oh, well, I lost two of my sons. I might as well kill two of my grandsons. Reuben, he's likely to just restore his relationship with his father. He's trying to gain his trust. Why? Because... He slept with his woman and he betrayed his trust. So he's trying to get back in that position, but it doesn't matter. Israel, Jacob, he does not trust Reuben. Still doesn't trust him. See, in this story, we encounter this pivotal moment with the sons of Jacob, the the men that made up the nation of Israel. There's been this sin, there was this sin that had been haunting them for at least 20 years. And it finally, after all this time, comes to the surface. God used Joseph to ultimately expose their sin. Why? So that he could spiritually restore them. 
God didn't want to bring this corrupt nation in. He wanted a holy nation, a nation that was set apart. He didn't want them haunted and ridden with sin. He wanted them to be free. See, maybe, maybe there's a sin in your life that's still haunting you to this day. And, you know, it's hard to to consider our past and the things that we've addressed and the things that we've confessed. And sometimes even those things, they have those uh, lingering effects. And we think about certain thoughts or certain experiences that we've had that we know aren't godly. But I'm not talking about those. I'm I'm talking about any sin that's gone unconfessed. That's that's just haunting you. That's just on your heart and you say one word, Egypt or whatever it is, and it triggers it. And now you have these memories and you have to live with this burden because you don't have to live with this burden. The enemy, he's trying to convince you that you're in a prison of sin, that you're enslaved to sin and you can't be free. But Christ says, we are free. We're free indeed if we choose to confess those sins, if we choose to walk in repentance, we can have freedom. Slavery is a choice, but freedom's a choice also. Luckily, these brothers, thank God, were tested so that they could be exposed, so that they could be restored, so that they could be free from a dirty conscience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text, God, and um, just all those years, I, I can't imagine um, just letting that, letting that sit uh, in my heart for, um, for, for a sin such as this. God, if there's any sins that, that we have that have gone unconfessed, I pray, Lord, that you would um, lead us to confession, that you would lead us to healing, Lord, because we know that you want the best for us. You want us to be restored. God, you want us to experience freedom. Lord, we know that the prison of, of, uh, of sin is a lie. It's not true. It's only true if we make it true. So God, I pray that you would just speak to us. Bring conviction where you need to be conviction. Bring conviction and Lord, lead us uh, in, in the path of freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.